Hey, y'all, I wanted to take a second before we get into this episode to remind you that the show is also available on YouTube. And starting from episode number 101, it's all in 4K. I'm trying to make the best video podcast I can, so definitely check it out and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Go to youtube.com slash at progressionspod or hit the link in the show notes. If you're not getting enough progressions and you want to get even more thoughts on creativity, productivity, and growth in music, then you should sign up for my newsletter. You'll find a brief article in each monthly edition as well as updates on progressions and myself. I'm also sharing some workflow hacks and links to stuff that I found interesting or helpful. So it should be fun. If you want to stay up to date on the latest and get all the bonus stuff, go to travisferencecom slash subscribe or click the link in the show notes. Hey, welcome to Progression, Success in the Music Industry. I'm your host, Travis Ferentz, and this is episode number 54. I hope y'all didn't miss me too much last week with this new every other week schedule that we've switched to. I've got a great hang today with a super talented engineer, and it's coming at you in just a few minutes. But speaking of last week, I was just on a quick vacation. I shot out of Los Angeles for a few days, and I went to visit my parents in a quiet little seaside town. And that's the inspiration for today's intro. It's going to be a bit anecdotal, but it's season two, and we're trying new things, so let's hit it. I've got a story that I have got to share because I know I will never see this happen again. And fingers crossed we can tie this to music at the end. So I was doing some classic people watching, just hanging out on the pier, watching people fish. There was an older lady fishing next to me. She was super friendly and very talkative. Another couple came up, probably in their 60s, and they started chatting with her, asking how the day was and unpacking their rods and bait, getting ready to fish. And she said that she'd been out there all morning and hadn't got a bite yet. And the gentleman asked, do you keep your fish, ma'am? And she said, oh, oh yes, sir, I do. We're in the South, in case you haven't noticed, where even retired people sir and ma'am each other. And so the man says, well, I'll make you a deal. If I catch something, I'll let you have it. And he'd obviously caught on to the fact that I hadn't, that this woman, at least 10 years his senior, was not fishing for sport like he was. She was fishing to save money on food. And so they kept chatting, and I kept taking in the scenery. I glanced down to see if anybody was catching anything further down the pier. And it wasn't but a minute or two later that I heard that man yell, and then I heard a splash. And I looked back to see his fishing rod in the water. He'd cast his line out, he'd lean the pole against the railing, and he let his guard down just long enough for a fish to bite and pull his rod in. Let's pause for a second. If you're this guy, you're screaming obscenities, right? You just lost your rod, you've only been out here for five minutes. I mean, I would be, I would be livid. Well, he's not. He's laughing. He says, damn, I ain't never seen one bite and pull my rod in. Babe, give me yours. Hand it over now, he says to his wife, and he grabs her rod, reels it in as fast as he can. Meanwhile, his rod is still floating. The tide's pulling it out slowly, though. It's maybe 15 feet off the dock. Calm as can be, he casts out with his wife's rod past his own floating rod and reels it in. Nothing. One more cast out, reels it in. Nothing again. His rod at this point is probably 30 feet off the pier and has started to go under. It's basically going Titanic, right? Where the handle's sticking out of the water and it's dipping vertically down into the ocean. This thing is gone. So he casts out one more time, this time way past his rod, and he lets it sink a bit before he reels it in. And then I see his rod jerk, and then it just disappears down into the water. At this point, everybody watching feels a bit defeated, as the man probably does, but he keeps going. A few more turns of the handle later, gets a little jerk, and he says, I think I got it. And so he kept reeling the line in, and to the surprise of all of us, his rod reemerged from the water. Eventually, he passed the rod to his wife, and she kept reeling it in so that he could lean over and grab his as soon as it was within reach. Is it time to celebrate yet? No, no, it is not time to celebrate yet, because he grabbed that rod, he gave it a big tug, and he started pulling his line in. And about a minute later, a fish came popping out of the water. He goes, there he is, I got him, how about that? He was ecstatic as he should be, he just got his rod back and got the fish that pulled it in. I'm telling you, I'm never going to see this happen again. So as soon as that fish was off the hook, he turned to the old woman, stuck it out to her, and he said, here you go, ma'am, this one's for you. Okay, so now I've told you a fishing story on my music industry podcast, and you're asking, have we hit the point of no return? Has Travis finally lost it? I, I don't know. Y'all tell me. But 
I took something away from watching this whole ordeal unfold. Something more than thinking about how badass this guy was. It made me think about what's important. What's worth getting pissed over? Why you should never quit? This guy could have been so pissed that he screamed and yelled until his rod sank. He could have tried to get his rod and failed, watched it sink to the bottom, and then demanded that his wife stop fishing so they can go home and ruin everybody's day. He knew it wasn't important if he got that rod back. And when he did get his rod and that fish, he remembered that there was somebody on that pier that needed that fish. So I'm guessing most of you are like me. You're tracking the success of every project you work on or every song that you put out. You're obsessively counting your streams. You're constantly comparing yourself to your peers. Sometimes you might even stoop so low as to expect something to be a bust just so it's not disappointing. We all love working in music. So much so that it's sometimes easy to forget to just step away for a second. It's likely that a lot of your closest friends are probably bandmates or collaborators and that you're talking about projects and work all the time. When you're doing that, it's hard not to get into the habit of complaining about a client or not landing a playlist or whatever. We can all get super caught up in being fully immersed in music 24 hours a day. But I think there's a huge benefit to stepping away, taking a break sometimes. Go somewhere where nobody cares how many streams your last track got or what your chart position is and take a second to recharge. If you're a mixer, how can you ever have fresh ears on something if you're mixing seven days a week, 12 hours a day? If you're a songwriter doing two-a-day sessions, how can you have anything to write about if you have no life experience outside the studio? That's what I originally wanted to do this intro about until I saw this epic fishing incident, to encourage you to work hard, but not to forget to recharge. It takes a lot of time and effort to build a lasting career in music, so you don't want to burn out early. And so for this fishing anecdote, I think it's obvious what the moral behind this story is. A, we're all in this crazy business together, so we've got to support each other. And B, don't quit. Not everything you do in this industry is going to be a hit and change your life. Just keep throwing your line out there, putting the work in, and eventually you'll hit your goal. And I think most of the time, you'll be surprised that you don't just hit your goal, you'll blow way past it, and you'll find the music equivalent to getting your rod back with a fish hooked on the end of it. And so that will definitely be the strangest intro for at least six months. Today's guest is London-based producer, engineer, and mixer Guy Massey. Guy is a Grammy and Music Producer Guild award winner that came up through the legendary Abbey Road Studios. He's worked on projects for artists such as Ed Sheeran, Kylie Minogue, Ajimal, Ray Davies, Spiritualized, and The Beatles. He's also been involved in movie soundtracks such as Yesterday and Rocketman, as well as various other projects. He's got a wealth of knowledge in all things recording, so let's get into it. Welcome to the show, Guy Massey. Hey, Guy, how's it going? I'm good, thank you. Uh, how are you? You good? I'm I'm good. Yeah, it's, I'm, my morning's starting strong. I'm, I'm on my second coffee, so we're we're ready to go. <laughs> so we we met uh, or or got connected through Ian Dowling, who was on my podcast. I think he was like episode twenty. Have you known Ian for a long time? Yeah, I've probably known Ian for about I guess about fifteen years. He assisted me on a on an album I was doing back when he worked at Strongroom Studios a fair time ago, uh, and we became. Yeah, good mates. I mean, I haven't seen him probably for a, at least 18 months since the uh, lockdowns and all that stuff happened. But um, yeah, no, he's, he's a good friend, Ian. He's a, he's a, good, he's a good lad. Uh, ho- we're hope- hopefully going to meet up in the next couple of weeks, hopefully, which would be nice. Nice. I had a good hang with him. I really like that guy. I've only, only talked to him twice in my life, but I loved it. So Yeah, yeah. So, um, he's a good lad. He's a good lad. <laughs> okay, so you guys met when he was working at Strong Room. That's like in the freelance part of your career, I'm, I'm guessing, right? Or were you, I, I'm kind of jumping forward for people. You worked at Abbey Road for a while, but obviously you, you've you been freelance for a long time, right? Yeah, yeah. I um, I worked at Abbey Road for about just shy of 10 years. I missed out on getting my little uh, silver medal for working there for 10 years by about two months or something, I think. <laughs> oh, they wouldn't give it to uh, you? That's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I had a part, a leaving party. Um and yeah, went went freelance, got a ma- you know a manager. I, I went with uh, a company that I really sort of respected all the uh, the engineers and producers on there, and I was with them for I'm guessing uh, when did I leave Abbey Road? 2015, probably eight years, maybe. Oh, cool! And it was during that time I think that that I met Ian. But I still had ties at Abbey Road. I was doing lots and bits of bobs there as well. You know, Beatles-related stuff that I'd been sort of involved with from the early days, really. So, yeah, 10 years at Abbey Road, eight years with 140 dB, 
And then I have a new manager now that, that, that looks after me. So I've been with him for about six, seven years, I think, something like that. Very cool. Very, I, I want to I come back. We're out of order. I always get out of order as fast as possible on this podcast just to make sure that it's confusing <laughs> for everybody. But uh, how did you initially get into music? Because I want to talk about Abbey Road stuff and, like, and obviously some Beatles stuff and then like what you're doing now. Did you play as a kid? How did you get started in music? Yeah, exactly. That was um, uh, the main reason for me getting into it, really. It was um, my dad had a guitar in the house, which was, uh, he's left-handed, my brother's left-handed, so they, and they both had guitars, and I, I sort of picked those up and and sort of played them upside down, if you know what I mean. And Oh, yeah. So they were, you know, strung the wrong way around, and just found my way around it, and just l- really loved it, and got into bands from about 14, I think, playing guitar. We, I mean, we were we were dreadful. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was it was real sort of poodle head rock. You know what I mean? I had a flying V. Um, yeah. Oh, and, nice. <laughs> yeah, I was I was well into UFO and and things like that when I was um, you know uh, fourteen years old. So I uh, yeah got a flying V and, and and joined a really really bad rock band. <laughs> uh, but it was it was amazing fun. Really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed it. And then during that time, I think it was after just after I left school, actually. So I must have been about eighteen. I joined another band and bought my first four track, and and just really enjoyed the, the process of recording. You know, it really it really excited me. And trying to make stuff sound as good as possible with with a very limited palette. Um, well, four tracks. Yeah, uh, that's right. <laughs> you know, yeah, bouncing, bouncing, bouncing. It was uh, that was really exciting, and and I became, I guess, more interested in that than actually playing. Um, so my girlfriend at the time, this was, uh, I guess, up to about twenty twenty one, and then I went to I had a, like a three year hiatus and went to university to do something completely unrelated uh, to music. I did a geology degree. <laughs> Uh, which was amazing, but you know it, it's not quite uh, music. <laughs> <laughs> and then when I got back, uh, I joined a band again, and and my girlfriend at the time said, "Why don't you do a, a you know course in in sort of you know uh, sound engineering?" And there was one available down in uh, the University of Surrey, down in uh, Guildford. They were offering like three month courses over the summer, so I went down, did that, passed, and they're sort of. A little carrot that they dangled was, you know, if you do well, we'll we'll get you into a into a London studio for work experience. And I lucked out and and, and got into Abbey Road, which was amazing. <laughs> so that that's that's a win. Was uh, what were like? Was it all the studios in London on that list, and you just happened to land on Abbey Road? I, I, I'm not sure why I got Abbey Road. I think I had a choice of two. I think I think it was possibly Air Studios and Abbey Road, and me being a Northerner and a and a Beatles fan. Obviously, I chose Abbey Road because you know why wouldn't you? <laughs> well, you totally. Why not? I would. I haven't been to London. My wife and I were supposed to go before the pandemic, and we obviously did not make it. But all I want to do is just stand in the middle of Studio Two for like thirty seconds. Just leave me in there, yeah. silence for thirty <laughs> seconds, and I'll be happy for the rest of my life. <laughs> so. Well, it's weird because you because you walk in there and it's like it's a bit like a school gym. <laughs> I bet um, I'm sure. Yeah, there's nothing particularly. You know, uh, uh, sort of special about st- standing in the ro- the room, apart from obviously the history. Yeah, and you, there is a vibe in there. I, I worked with an artist a, a few years back, and we we walked in, and he said, "You know, the room is a bit imposing in a way, but what it does, it makes you want to just be the best you can be, sort of thing." Yeah, and I guess I guess that's the history, you know, seeping into you uh, when when you walk in there. It's an amazing room to be in. I used to love, you know, recording in there. It's so good, so good. Yeah, it's it's like that over here. There's some of the studios that I've I've worked in in LA, and I worked at Capitol for a long time. And it's like, okay, there is a vibe when you walk into one of those rooms, especially if you know what's been done. And then there's then I feel like you the gravity of you're like, wow, a lot of stuff has happened in here. Like, sure, yeah, it's like it's empty right now, or it's trashed after a session, but. You can still feel like, like you said, like you feel like you have to be better than you were before you walked in. <laughs> yeah, and I, I really like that, you know, uh, an artist saying that sort of thing because it's sort of like, this has gone before, I have to be equal equal to it or just give my best because it's such a, you know, such an amazing space. Yeah. Even though, as I said earlier, it is just, it is a little bit like a school gym studio too, but it <laughs> sounds fantastic. I love it. <laughs> 
That's amazing. That's awesome. So, okay, so you started out at Abbey Road with an internship, and then yep. was that a guaranteed job at the end, or did you have to earn that spot? Uh, I had to earn it, really. My my boss at the time, Colette, she took me on for three months work experience, so I was like working in the tape copying room and, you know, making tea and all, all that sort of stuff. And I did a lot of hours. It was unpaid. And then she saw that I was really sort of hungry for, you know, the gig, really. So she uh, she offered me a job at the end of my three months work experience uh, as uh, an assistant. This was about 96, I guess. And back then you didn't really have runners and things. So as a an assistant, you were expected to do a lot of stuff. You know, you had to do... Uh, you know, assist the engineer, tape up and go out and get the coffees and do all that sort of... Now you have lots of separate little people to do <laughs> to do lots of different jobs but by the sounds of it. That's really interesting, actually. I think about, like, some of the things that were, like, pushed down on me when I was working at Capital started as a runner and, and moved okay. up, but is to never leave the room. So the idea that the assistant engineer would have to, like, run down the street and grab the lunch to me says that pretty much everybody that's working in there is capable of working in there. You can, you can leave these people alone. It's like, a, I feel like there's another level of engineering that is kind of not around as much as it was then. Does that make sense? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's a valid point, definitely. It's like, things were, I guess, were a bit easier then. Everything was tape-based, you know? So, was it easier? Was it harder? I don't know. Um, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it, it, it was simpler, I guess. Yeah. Because you, you knew your role. It, uh, often you would you would have... I mean, I remember working in the back of Studio One, doing you know, working on film jobs as an assistant, and I, I found it way too stressful because you'd be you'd sometimes have two two twenty four track analog machines, a forty eight digital backup, you know, the Sony three uh, thirty three forty eight machine, yeah, yeah, and and a and a Yamatic taking the two track from the desk. And you'd have to, you know, jockey all of those. And it was, I, I found it a bit too stressful, to be honest with you. Um, <laughs> it was always like, nah, don't put me on those gigs. But, uh, and yeah, there was, there was a, it was a bit more simple, I think. And, and you're right, you know, I think the, the quality of uh, producers and engineers that were able to afford and, and use the studio were, you know, exemplary sort of thing. They, were, they, they knew their craft. And if you ran out to get the coffees, they were fine, you know, operating tape machine yeah. or, or doing whatever you know well i guess it kind of goes to the fact that like back then if you were working in a studio you came up in a studio because you couldn't sit at home on your laptop mm. so if you were yeah. if you were on a session at abbey road you'd seen every console in london once you'd worked with half the musicians in town uh, it's like not knowing how everything in the room works i guess just really isn't an option at that point you just you've learned it all because that's how you ended up there now you can be amazingly accomplished and only know how to use Ableton, and at which point the engineer can't even like stand up to go get a coffee if if we're in Pro Tools. <laughs> exactly, uh, and it's also I think uh, because the the way uh, pr uh, studios like employing assistants these days, it, it's it, often you'll have floating assistants that use uh, you know employed by different studios, so. When I started, I mean, I was locked in Studio 2, essentially. And then if my boss asked me to work to do a gig in Studio 3, which was a huge SSL console, I would just shit my pants. You know what I mean? It'd be like, oh, I don't know. Don't know this room. No, anxious. Anxiety kicking in. So I, I did I did make sure that I learned both rooms. But then upstairs, we had a, a really sort of uh, old school digital console. I think it was called the Capricorn, a Neve, a Neve console. Mm. And I just said to my boss, look, I, I, I don't understand it. it uh, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't want to work in the digital domain. <laughs> Proper Luddite. I don't want to understand uh, it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it doesn't make sense. So she never did. Um, she never put me on them, which was um, amazing. So uh, I was essentially for my whole 10 years, tenure there, uh, locked in either in Studio 2 or Studio 3. And yeah, you know, loved every minute of it. You know, I, I was I was saying to a friend the other day, I think we were employed for 40-hour contracts, but most, most weeks I'd do well over 80 sort of thing. Oh, yeah. And that's that's <laughs> that was, you know, where you wanted to be and that was what it was about, really. Yeah, yeah. Learning, learning from the best, you know. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was great. Really enjoyed it. That's amazing. Yeah, that's, that, that's, 
that's kind of, that's my experience coming up except I started at Capital when you were leaving Abbey Road probably so okay different different generation how long were you at Capital uh, I worked there uh, twice slightly confusing story but it, it totaled out to be seven to eight years oh, so wow. I, had a, okay. I had a little break where I went freelance in the middle and then I I went back but I I loved it and you know it's like I Abbey Road to me has always been like this sister studio because we always had like joint managers at some point. Like after you were gone, there was there was a hierarchy where everything started to become connected. Yeah. And uh, I always feel like slightly tied to to Abbey Road in that way. But, you know, like we're, we always have our we have our American Masters of the Beatles and you guys have the originals and, you know, we have our Sinatra <laughs> and that's all we talk about. But, you know, what was funny is I don't know. I'm sure you, you guys didn't have this, but we had a U48 at Capitol that was labeled Frank. And obviously, oh, really? Sinatra probably, yeah, right. So I'm sure he sang into all the U48s, but I don't know, this is like the best sounding one. So it became called Frank. So I'm just assuming yeah. you guys, you guys have mics called like John and Paul and stuff like that over there, right? <laughs> I, well, if, if we did, I wasn't aware of it. I mean, <laughs> I remember being on certain uh, classical sessions and, and the, the engineers there would say, well, you know, if you're putting up a deck of tree, these are the M50s you need to use, and the serial numbers and stuff. And oh, yeah. generally, they were they were right. But no, I mean, I especially with 47s, I, I, I would definitely just and 48s. I would just try different ones, you know, and see yeah. what, see what worked. The 67 was always the one for me, though. That was my favorite favorite mic. Still is to this day. So yeah, I, lo- um, I love a good 67. I I heard you. I was doing a little research, like I always do this morning, and I, I heard you talking about doing a whole string section with 67s. Uh, yeah, that was, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. like all we did at Capital was all 67s on everything. And most people are like, you had how many U67s? You're like, yeah, we had like 17 of them. Yeah. But, well, that was always my thing because they were so, there's a there's a darkness to them, uh, um, uh, you know, the lower mids and stuff. They're not too hyped. And uh, yeah. I was doing an album with The Divine Comedy and we had two or three days booked in Studio 2 at Abbey Road and... and I think we did the the strings separately, the brass separately, and the choir separately. And I, I just I said to him, "Just humour me. I want to put sixty sevens on everything." <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's definitely one of my favourite string sounds that I've ever recorded. It's beautiful, really lovely, really lovely. That's great. If you're enjoying this episode, then please consider pulling your phone out, tapping that share button, and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it. Obviously, it would be huge for me, but it could be even more game-changing for that person. You just never know what can inspire or help someone else out. I want to take a second to tell you about Secret Sonics, a podcast by Ben Wallach and Carl Bonner. Secret Sonics is one of my favorite shows, and it's now double amazing with the addition of Carl Bonner as a co-host. Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real-world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes. But just for our audience, because a lot of them are younger and they haven't encountered a lot of vintage equipment, can you talk about, like you, you mentioned, trying out different U47s. For somebody that's unfamiliar with vintage equipment, why would you try three different, or the same microphone, three different versions of the same microphone? Are they really that different? It's a loaded question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I guess so. I mean, uh, I mean, in a place like Abbey Road, you know, they're maintained so well, so maybe not so much. But you know, depending on 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 the how, what condition the capsule is in, um, whether you know it's dirty, dusty, uh, which valve is in there, whether it's an original or a newer valve, you know, those things all make a difference um, on the sound. A friend of mine. Uh, and myself, we we sourced some 67s a couple of years ago, and they were all the same era. Their serial numbers were pretty close, and we brought them back to the studio and, and listened to each each one of them separately, and they were all vastly different. <laughs> we, uh, you know, we basically we took them all apart and made our dream 67s, and then uh, <laughs> and then sold the sold the rest, sort of thing. Um, Perfect. But they did. I mean, for me, that that, that it's sometimes. Uh, you, you know, you put you put one in front of somebody, and, and maybe it's a slightly extended in the top end, or a bit honky, or something. So you try something else, and it might not be the best sounding forty-seven or forty-eight or whatever, but it just suits the voice better. Do you know what I mean? Oh yeah, it's it's like it's like that thing, isn't it, where you you know you're getting drum sounds, and you're saying oh, I'm going to get the best drum sound in the world, and then you you put it in the track, and it's like mm, sounds shit. It needs to be boxy and small. <laughs> it's funny how the bigger and better something is, the uh, less likely it is to stay that way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, because I've talked about this a lot 
with a few of my guests, especially ones that have come up through kind of a traditional engineering background, how do you feel the recording studio path has changed for like, for a kid that's about to graduate school or is about to get his first studio job? Is going for the big studios like Abbey Road or Capitol, is that the move now or do you think it's different? I think I think um, a lot of the bigger studios are, you know, taking on interns and runners. I mean, Abbey Road always used to sort of use the the guys from uh, you know degree courses, uh, Tom Meisters, for the most part. I think because they, they they wanted people who had you know you know either a musical background or a technical background. But um, smaller studios w- would take just like people who were hungry to to progress. And I think these days, I mean, I, I, I'm sort of mentoring and, and using a, a couple of younger guys who just approached me, you know, for work. It's cold called, really. And it's like, do you ever need any help to, you know, prepping sessions, mix sessions or recording? Generally for me, it's, you know, prepping mix sessions and things like that. So I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm more than happy to employ people in that sense. But I think overall it's changed enormously, you know, because so many studios have shut, I guess. And there aren't as many to choose from. Yeah, I still think for people wanting to, really wanting to get into it, they they should definitely send CVs to all, all the studios that they would dream of working in. Because you never know. I think that's it's it's important to think big, really. I I think so too. And I think the the lessons in, that you can get in those big studios interacting with those you know, massively talented engineers and producers are like, you can't match those with an education or a YouTube video. So. Yeah. And it's, it's not, it's not all about the technical aspect. I mean, someone always said to me, you know, it's 50% about uh, the sound you get and it's 50% about how you are in the studio. You know, that's one of the most important things for me is the etiquette, how clients react to you, how you react to clients. You know, that's such an important part of it. Uh, and if you ain't got the vibe, then it ain't happening. <laughs> That's right. It is. It is a thing. It comes up all the time. It's like well, probably the the number one thing that that comes up on this show to just remind people. Like it's you know, if you're not a great hang or you're not a great person, like nobody really cares if you're like the greatest guitar player that ever lived. They still aren't going to hire you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe uh, if you're all... the best in the world, they'll hire you. But if you're second, like it's a no go for sure. <laughs> no, we'll get we'll get what's his name. He's much better. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's uh, yeah the etiquette and and just uh, I, I mean I I found you know with a, with a couple of the the younger guys it, it's like that they seem very eager to let you know what they know even though it's not really important to that point in a session. Do you know what I mean? It's like, no, just, you know, you just really need to focus, do your job, do your job well. Don't offer an opinion if you're not asked for one. Right, right. <laughs> you, know, you know, and, and not coming, not, I don't mean that to sound, you know, um, snarky or anything. I don't mean it like that. I mean, I never, I was never offering an opinion. Uh, I would ne- I'd never have dreamed of offering one to an artist who, uh, you know, was maybe you know, insecure about their voice or, blah, blah, you know, there's so many things that, that, that could upset a session really quickly oh, yeah. that you just, you just do your job and do it well and remain invisible <laughs> yeah. um, in the early, you know, in the early days. And if you ask an opinion, then you give a measured opinion. <laughs> a measured, <laughs> I think one um, of the most loaded questions or fearful questions you could possibly get in a session is when the singer comes in and they're like, what'd you think of that one? And you're like... <laughs> Don't I don't know how to answer that question. Even if it was great, like it might have been your least favorite, and I say I love it. Now you're pissed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, yeah, I think it's pretty good. Uh, I think yeah, I think as a tape up or an assistant, um, if 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 people, at, uh, it depends what sort of vibe you have with the artist. You know, if you, if you are becoming friendly with them and they and they do genuinely want an opinion, then you should be able to gauge that. Yeah, often you know. They should be looking to the producer or the engineer at that point. I think, <laughs> what was that like? <laughs> totally, totally. You know, you mentioned uh, you mentioned tape op, and I know that that's kind of on the you know the trajectory at Abbey Road. I think. Did you say the tape op is kind of before assistant, or or they they were kind of mixed together? They were sort of intertwined, I think. So I think T Boy was that was the first point of call, really. Right. And during that time, which I can't remember how long that lasted, really, you would you would literally make the tea, but sit and then set up 
the session. So you you get the studio plan from the engineer and and set the get all the mics set up essentially into the board uh, routed. If there was a recall to do, you'd do the recall. Oh, and that's then when cool. the sessions came, yeah, when the session came round, you would operate the tape machines. Very cool. So T boy, you were kind of learning your you were learning the room a little bit, but you just weren't working with clients. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You definitely wouldn't be allowed near the desk, really. Right. Like, like properly uh, in anger, you know. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I used to do that on weekends. Um, if I, if I wasn't, you know, massively knackered, I'd get friends' bands in and get, you know, just learn, learn, you know, make mistakes in your own time. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. I always remember <laughs> I was doing the session late one Saturday night, and I think it was a classical session in Studio One, and uh, the engineer came up, and uh, I was just distorting all of my camps and getting these crunchy drum sounds and he and he came and he said stop stop something's distorting and i said yeah doesn't it sound amazing uh so there was a very different there was an us and them thing where like you know the the rock boys were into uh destroying the consoles and the, and the the purest uh, classical engineers hated distortion oh um, yeah <laughs> obviously but um, yeah it, it was just funny you know it was like a different world really but i did learn i learned a huge amount from the classical lads there you know how to mic up orchestras and you know one, one of my friends hayden bendall who who's a an amazing engineer who used to work at abbey road and i did quite a, quite a few sessions with him he he taught me so many amazing techniques for recording strings but the one of the most most of the best bits of advice i got from him was never run <laughs> as an assistant or, or an engineer yeah. you know if something goes wrong never run <laughs> yes true true remain yeah. remain in control yeah yeah uh well you know this just just came to me because you said you had the classical guys and, and then there were the rock guys i mean i guess we could start talking Beatles stuff i mean i guess you make the argument that you know what revolver era Beatles and jeff emmerich that was like the beginning of abbey road kind of not just being like a classical, clean, high-fidelity place? Or were there other kind of rock things going on that people don't talk about? I guess I'm probably not the right person to ask that question. Well, obviously, I mean, you I, weren't there. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, I guess I guess my question is, did, did that kind of like, does that continue through the the legacy of like you've got, in Abbey Road, You've like you said, you've got the rock guys and the classical guys. Does that, is that do you think, does that kind of stem from those first Beatles records where... They weren't allowed to put the mic that close to the kick drum, and um, possibly, I guess uh, you know, there's just more of a purist approach in, in in the classical recording that I've seen and and continue to see, you know, which is which is right, you know, you want a like a real natural representation of of, of what's happening in the room, where whereas you know what what I do is definitely more of bring in other elements, the unnatural elements, I guess, um, to stuff, but. Uh, that probably holds true still to these days. I mean, they they definitely have, especially at Abbey Road. You know, there'll be engineers on the left who are very versed in in film score recording and. I mean, I'm sure classical recording still happens in, in the in the sense that it did when when I was there. And then guys on the right who are very much more into into their sort of pop and rock and stuff like that, which is a different. You have to have a different hat on, I guess. You know. Oh yeah. I, I, I still definitely use techniques that that you know i was taught back then now for, for recording because i often do strings and you know uh, and and don't want affected you know super compressed drums or things like that that people would have taught me back in the day yeah yeah i think the the mix of the the two is is really important for just being well-rounded and kind of understanding a lot of genres i i, I just say that because yeah, yeah. i'm in a similar place like capital such a high fidelity thing but then everything i do now is just straight pop just pop music distort it saturate it okay it. so it's like this you know this blend of of the two worlds which i i really do enjoy because i feel like it lets you do records everywhere and some people they just are out of their element you know some places but yeah uh, and i think you know mixing it mixing and matching that sometimes uh, i mean i'm mixing an album at the moment that's quite acoustic based but i'm really trying to push the envelope a bit with with the saturation of the whole thing um, yeah, yeah I, I, I'm a massive fan of Sean Everett, and you know, I think everything that he does has has a really sort of interesting approach. But you know, at the heart of it seems to be saturation, but and it's never too much; it's just enough, you know. It's, um, 
<laughs> he really does uh, do amazing work. So good. He's uh, so. he's insanely talented. I am. Um, I bow down to his genius. <laughs> uh, well, let's let's kind of close out Abbey Road, touch on the Beatles, and then get into you know you now what you're doing. So you worked on a lot of Beatles remaster reissue stuff, uh-huh. like uh, with the complete masters or, or stuff like that. When somebody hands you like tapes like that, I mean, obviously at this point you've been at Abbey Road for like ten years, but is there like a wait when you're like, okay, now I need to work with this like you know historic piece of music history right here? Is there is there a gravity to that? Well, I think um, you sort of myself and another guy, Paul Hicks, who um, who worked there at the same time. We worked, we started on the same day, and he finished like a I don't know a few months after me. Uh, and is, is still doing quite a lot of Beatles-related work, actually. He works with uh, Danny Harrison quite a lot. But we we sort of came up through it and were basically allowed to assist on Beatles sessions. So I think the first one I did was um, when Yellow Submarine was redone, the song track, I think it was called. I, uh, I assisted on that with a guy called Pete Cobbin, who at that time was doing a lot of the remixing. And once... We were, I guess, uh, uh, the guys became confident that we weren't going to fuck things up. Uh, they would allow us to do to, to do. Am I allowed to swear? By the way, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're good. You're in the clear. <laughs> uh, so I, I swear a lot. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, you so can unleash it. It's fine. <laughs> uh, we were allowed, you know, a little bit more free reign. So after that, I think Paul and I, we did the anthology. Well, the DVD anthology. So basically, if you've ever heard the DVD anthology, everything in that is in 5.1. Right. So Peter Cobbin did quite a lot of the music, the majority. I, I, I did a few a few albums, and I think Paul did a few. But we, we did all the effects, um, even the interviews. We made little rooms in Studio 2 and, 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 and set up surround mic rigs, so recorded the, the interview audio in a surround space. And dubbed that back into the program. It was like it was such That's a cool. long, yeah. It was a long and, and really interesting uh, gig. That I mean, I think it, uh, it probably took us a year on and off to do that. Wow. But but not it wasn't the selling point on the DVD for some reason. But I think I think a lot of people don't know that everything on there is remixed material. So they're all remixed Beatles songs, and all uh, all the audio has been remixed. All the all the effects were were resourced and all the rest of it. So that that was our first big one. And then Paul and I did uh, Give Me Some Truth, the Lennon doc. Uh, again, Peter mixed the music. And then uh, I did Help. I think then when that was re-released, I did all the songs in Surround, which was amazing, such good fun. And then went on to do the uh, the remasters. But um, back to your question with regards to the gravity of yeah holding the tapes, um, terrifying. <laughs> uh, you put the, put, put them on a machine and it's I, I do remember putting please please me mono on to the tape machine and pressed rewind and uh, and all the because uh, uh, I guess it hadn't been out of the box for a long time all the glue had dried out so all the leader <laughs> just oh, disappeared no. Oh, oh no <laughs> so, so it's like my first thought was fuck I've just broken the Beatles first album um, but managed managed to uh, the tape was fine, but uh, yeah, I just had to basically rebuild all the edits and oh, and the readers oh, no. in between and, and all that stuff. You know, it was a bit of a bit of a uh, a long job, but yeah, there was some, there's something about it. But and and having the luxury of being able to you know later on when when stuff was four track and eight track, being able to solo stuff and just listening to Lennon or, or, or McCartney's voices in isolation was pretty amazing, to be honest with you. That stuff is and, crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was such a huge fan from, uh, you know, when I was a kid. I mean, I discovered them when the, the Red and Blue compilation albums came out. Okay. So, remember mates would use, I, I guess I was 14, 15, something like that, and remember mates would just listen to those constantly um, on Friday nights after... Smoking some weed. <laughs> <laughs> well, another question I actually hadn't thought of. So the the remasters are just they're they're probably f- high fidelity flat transferred remastered, right? But then these uh, the remixes for the DVD. What was the approach there? Was it to like 
to be as true as possible, but then at the same time, you're also breaking it out to five one. So like, what was the what was the conversation like to because you're taking something that somebody's so familiar with and you're taking it to a space it's never been. Which DVD uh, are we talking about? Uh, the anthology, you mean? Or yeah, um, yeah. I mean, uh, the, the remit was always to for it to, it to uh, you know the mix is to lie in Beatles land, so not not to have any weird panning that that wasn't already there on the originals, but just to try and break them out to 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 have them in a in a you know um, a more immersive space. So again, we set up loads of microphones in studio to. Uh, and then pumped elements out into the studio to record the ambience and surround, so we weren't using plugins and and things like that, you know. Okay. And and and, that, and that's how we we sort of learned those techniques, really. You know, it was uh, and it's something that I'd still do these days if I could. I mean, you know, my my mix studio obviously doesn't have a, a, a space as big as Abbey Road Studio Two, so I can't really do that. Um, <laughs> have to rely on software plugins. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, basically the the remit was don't go mad, make right. them sound, don't make them alien to anybody. But if you can bring you know bring them forward uh, to in a way that's more not more palatable, but that's more uh, familiar to a, to a younger audience, I guess maybe in some way. To be careful with the crown jewels, but not uh, over polish them. <laughs> totally. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's, I mean, yeah, that, that's awesome. I, I think, uh, yeah, it, it would be an honor to get to, uh, to work on anything of, of that, you know, of that caliber. I, I denoised like a Sinatra Christmas record one time for, for a re-release. Oh, yeah. And that was, that was like, I that felt, I was so proud of that. I was like, I did this thing for Sinatra. Ah, yes. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's, it's awesome if, if you can have an opportunity to work on, on something, you know, of that, you know, historical level which is amazing but to move on you mentioned five one maybe yeah. you do this maybe you don't have you explored the dolby atmos game do you have an opinion you- <laughs> uh, uh, it's funny you should say that um oh <laughs> i i've just i've just put my order in for oh, a, my, my system <laughs> oh um uh, yeah i'm taking delivery of uh, an atmos uh 7.1.4 system in about three weeks i think nice very cool um which is slightly scary in some ways <laughs> you know i i love immersive audio but i i also want I want the immersive audio in binaural to be as spectacular as it is with with speakers. And at the moment, I don't think it's quite there. So, and it's still obviously in its infancy. But yeah, I'm, I'm gonna. I'm, I'm just almost finished this Ajimal's second or third album, and I'm gonna mix it specifically in, in Atmos just to learn it. Really, I guess, which I think will be a nice a nice way of doing it. Again, like I mentioned earlier, you know you know, making mistakes on your own time, I guess. So that his sort of music is very, it's sort of f- folk-tronica, I guess. So there's a lot of, you know, quite um, stretched frequency uh, spectrum for the whole album, actually. So there's lots of low end and, and sort of mad top and stuff. So we're... We're gonna do we're gonna do that together in in Atmos, and that'll be my first foray into it. But I, I think in general, it's an amazing experience. But you know, if ninety five percent of people are going to be listening to it on headphones in binaural, then the binaural render has to be amazing. Otherwise, it sort of sounds just like a wide, slightly wider mix of the original. You know, that is like I couldn't agree with that more. That's like my thoughts exactly. I don't no. have an Atmos system in here, but I've. It's it's on the list. It's a maybe, but I I have that opinion of like where the majority of people are going to hear music, it's going to be binaural, and so I yeah. There's parts of you know parts of me that wonder like how, I mean yeah, you need the speakers to understand the format, but if like the average person is going to experience this via spatial audio with AirPods, like isn't the most important thing the that the binaural is epic? Like that's to me, I'm I'm all for it with with you. I agree. Yeah, so. um, yeah. I, I, it's just like you—you do, you don't want to be shortchanging people, really. And, and and I think, I think it will progress. And you know, in a, in a year's time, we could have this conversation again, and it'll be like, fuck me, if you had, you know, Atmos, it sounds phenomenal. 
you know. Um, or what happened to your and, Atmos speakers? I sold them. <laughs> <laughs> or conversely, that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, I, you know, listen, listening to stuff in Atmos, I, I adore on speakers, you know, and I'm, I'm going to take the plunge. And I don't want to just be up mixing stems. You know, if you get 25 stems and people want you just to make a Dolby Atmos mix, I don't really want to do that. I'd love to be to get involved in back catalog stuff, recreating the mixes in stereo first, yeah, and then breaking that out into a proper, you know, Dolby Atmos mix sort of thing. I mean, that's the goal, but we'll have to see. You know, it's a it's a it's a it's a risk and it's a punt, but I really want to do it. So. Uh, that sort of answers one of your last questions, I think, um, with regards <laughs> to what's happening the in the future. That, yeah, that was it, really. <laughs> well, shh, don't don't talk about it anymore. Uh, uh, no, that, that's that's awesome. I think, um, yeah, I think, I think it's a really cool opportunity because there's no bar. I mean, there's the, you know, I've some friends that have been doing it at Capital for a few years. They've been like very, you know, forward pushing and forward thinking on it. So they've been doing it for years, but. There's really no bar other than this like small group of people that have done a bunch of these. Most people have never done it. They've never thought about it. This a mix can be, you know, we don't know what a great Atmos mix sounds like, which is really exciting. Not knocking the ones that are out there. There are some good ones, but yeah, like yeah, you said, it's yeah. early. You know, it's so it's cool. I think I I'm glad you're doing it. I think it'll be fun. I think you'll you'll crush it particularly <laughs> with your your past experiences, I think. Well, I mean, I think I guess you know, having mixed a fair amount of five one in the past, it, it it does. I guess it hopefully it will it will lend itself to, um, uh, you know, this new format. I mean, I don't want, I don't want stuff to be whizzing around the head, and uh, you know, um, no. I mean, there's so obviously, you know, you're familiar with this. It's like in a surround mix, unless it's electronica or or sort of really niche you want it you want to feel like you're part of the music somehow and sitting in the middle of performers or, or whatever but i think when you got like stuff flying around you the top of your head at you know a million miles an hour and it pulls you out of the, i don't I, I never want it to pull you out of the song really uh, everything yeah. has to service the song um in, in some way so i think uh, i've got a couple of mates that are doing a fair amount of it and you know they're they're saying you know, you know the label might come down and say well you know can we can we have some movement and it's like well yeah you can but you know is it is it gonna serve the song or, or is it just a gimmick and that's what yeah. I guess what I'm getting at I don't want it to be gimmicky you know no yeah are you gonna are you gonna still want that movement two and a half years from now or are you gonna be bummed that you requested that to go around your head you know <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know it's cool it's cool that there's like kind of a new like you know, there's a new space to go into. It's been a minute for like audio to have something to like jump into. So I think it's I think it's cool. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm really excited and want to want to make it work. It's not what I want to do all the time. It, you know, if it does take off for me, but it's something that I definitely want to learn and get good at. You know, it's uh, yeah. and it's just it is. I've done a couple of a couple of days of just doing it on headphones with the, with the you know binaural renderer and uh, you know get, I'm I'm getting my head around it, but. Um, it's, I need to do it on speakers, um, yeah. know, do it properly. Um, That's the conversation to, to... I had with, with a friend of mine. He was like, yeah, you could do it on headphones, but if you've never done it on speakers, you're not going to understand what you're doing on headphones. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, I wanted to hit just a couple like broad career, like questions before we, we work our way to the close. Uh, so you were a staff engineer at a great studio. What inspired you or gave you the spark to go independent? Like what happened in your life or what opportunity came up that made you go for that? <laughs> it, it was a bit of a mad time because I just had a kid, ah. ju just um, got a mortgage. Um, <laughs> and then as those two things happened, I said to Abbey Road, I think I'm going to leave. <laughs> <laughs> which which is a bit a bit mental um sort of like why are you doing this now but i guess i guess abbey road had become i mean uh, i guess in in the mid 2000s bands couldn't really afford to use it in the same way they had been able to in the in the mid 90s and so the opportunities for me to work with the producers i really wanted to work with were getting uh, less and less and my boss I think was like, you know, putting me on more film work, which um, I adore film music, you know, but I don't, 
really want to be like the engineer on a lot of them, to be honest right. with you, because they're, they're quite stressful, I find. You know, I, I remember being th- yeah, thrown onto a Lord of the Rings one for two days when uh, when one of the engineers was sick, and I just thought, how do you how do you do this? It's just so complicated. Yeah. <laughs> it's not drums, bass, guitar, and keyboards anymore. <laughs> and they sit there like they've done it. Well, they have done it a million times, but they're unfazed by like eighty yeah. microphones and a hundred thousand dollar orchestra. They're just whatever. They're like another day at the office. <laughs> <laughs> well, I found I found more that the just the how Pro Tools was laid out. I mean, I use Pro Tools as a big tape machine, you know, um, and manipulating device after the fact. But there's so much that you have to really be on board with with how they lay out their sessions, the naming of files, where the files go. And when you're thrown in in the deep end, I was like, nah, not having it. I find this way too stressful. <laughs> so uh, at that point, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I sort of had seen that the golden age of the mid to late 90s where bands had big budgets to record in the studio for a month or so had gone. And that's what I wanted to do, you know. So I left. Uh, before I left, I uh, you know, spoke to a management company, checked in with, with all my sort of uh, sort of producer friends or people have made friends with over over the 10 years to see if they would you know use me on gigs and it all seemed positive so I did leave and um it, I think it was a good thing for me you know I mean I, I adore the studio and and still do and go there whenever I can but um you know it's it was time to go you know sometimes you just get to a point and it's like ah, I can't do this anymore yeah so I left and worked in lots of different you know smaller studios for probably five or six years, worked with lots of different producers. And then it was time to get my own place. So I got a mix space, which I've been in for about eight years now. And that definitely changed. It changed the way I work because obviously I, I moved into mixing a lot more, which I love. I, I love mixing, but it's big enough to produce everything apart from live drums and a full band, really. But I've got conk studios up, up the road and, and another place called Snap, which is an amazing Neve uh, based studio just around the corner who's it's run by a friend of mine Marco so I go there quite a lot to do to do lots of recording actually but Great. generally come back to my place to mix um, can't remember what the question was <laughs> uh, you know honestly I can't either <laughs> uh, no that, that, that's great though there is like Having your own space, especially when you're mixing or you're like a self-producer, whether it's professionally built or you know you're a bedroom guy or whatever. You can just work so much faster, like when things are set up the way you want and you can get yeah. to what you know is great so much quicker. So do you have your room dialed in? Like, is there any any workflow things that you think are awesome that people should consider? Well, what works for me is just being able to have, um, I don't have a console, um, but I have a hybrid sort of um, mix bus approach where I use a fair amount of analog gear. Uh, on the way into tools and then generally uh, I seem to be using more and more on the mix bus after the analog as well these days um, <laughs> so many amazing tools to use but um, not, not really I mean I guess it depends what you what your goals are I mean for me having some interesting synths some interesting guitar pedals guitar amps guitars it's always been very important to me so I still have all of those I did a session with Divine Comedy um, a couple of weeks ago and just having a piano in the room when we're doing vocals or doing bits and bobs was a, a revelation. It's, it's, it's a crappy little parlor <laughs> piano, but it's really lovely, you know, and it's slightly yeah. out of tune, but, but it's great for it. And it's sort of a bit Tom Waitsian in that respect. Cool. So just having, having things at your disposable that you know. I mean, there's so many things here that I never use, you know. I mean, I've got... I've got a crappy old tape machine that I love, but I, I, I never use it anymore. Uh, t- yeah, it needs a, it needs to clear out. But I guess for me, if if you know, if you put a gun to my head and said, you know, what can't you do without? Especially for uh, you know, if you, if you want to be a one stop shop, would be a great mic amp, a great EQ, and a great compressor, a really good microphone, a great dynamic like these RE twenties or the SM seven. I think you've got there. Uh, and some good monitoring and a good monitor controller, you know. Yeah. They're really important tools to have, I think. And there are so many people making amazing sounding records in their bedrooms, you know. So True. Maybe you don't even need all of those. <laughs> um. <laughs> well, it's all about the music. It's always been about the music. We just have to throw of, all this gear co- on top of it. So. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
So uh, one more. This is a random question. I've never really got the phrasing of this question correct. So let me know okay. if it if it makes sense. But in all of your your years of experience, is there something that you think is important to building a career that like a younger engineer producer might not even be thinking about that they should be? Work on stuff you like. Ooh, I like that. Would be my advice. I think. I mean, starting out, obviously, you have to work on on um what whatever comes to you i guess in lots of ways but i think to get truly good at something you have to really enjoy what you're doing i mean we're in a very very privileged area that we we i say this to my son every day you know what i mean it's like i love my job for the most part because it means you know i can i can be creative and and generally people like what i deliver to them and that's obviously you know over it's taken 25 years for me to get to this point so I think for people, you know, starting out, it's fine, fine bands, artists that they, they admire, get in with them somehow. I mean, I don't mean big bands. I mean, you know, on, on the live circuit, find something you like and get them in. I mean, I'm still doing things like that. I'm still, still doing development things with, with young bands. They come here, we'll, we'll knock, knock some tunes together. And, um, you know, I find that really rewarding. You know, there's no money involved or anything, but it's just something for me. I just like doing that sort of thing. And then you can do the day job on top of that as well, you know, and hopefully all of them are, are, are rewarding. But I guess working with young artists is, is one of the things I'd really love to do on a, you know, I'll try, I'll try and do at least two or three projects a year where I just give my time for a week or two weeks and, and, and either do an EP or a bunch of mixing for somebody, you know. Cool. That's amazing. That's awesome. Yeah, it's like the yeah you you got to have the projects that keep the uh, the passion and the excitement because yeah I mean we are the day job part of it is still mixing music but yeah you got to yeah I love that that's that's great so um, a couple closing questions this one of the things that I'm kind of trying to talk about in season two is kind of the the world of credits in music and how they're like they're a bit mixed up they're a bit wrong. Uh, to be to to be polite about it, do you yeah. have any thoughts about credits or the problems with or this the solution the ideas is do you have do you have any thoughts on credits in music right now? I well uh, t to be honest, I think the credits in music should be exactly the same as credits in movies. I think um, if you've worked yeah. on a project, you should be credited for it. I mean, I think some people may use them, you know, disingenuously sometimes and say they've worked on something in one capacity when it hasn't been, maybe. But I think on the whole, you know, if you've engineered a, a vocal on a track, you should be credited for it or, or mixed a track or done pre-production. Assistants need to be credited on, on platforms like Spotify and Tidal. I mean, Tidal's, I, I use Tidal and I think it's, 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 um, it's crediting pages are a lot better than spotify but again oh, yeah. that is down to the label and the artist as well isn't it to give the metadata information over i guess so yeah for me it, it should be it should be like like movies you Agreed. know people rely on credits people want to know if you want to work with some a prospective client and they say well what have you done you can point them in the right direction and if the credit's there they're like they're more likely to use you so yeah it's really important really important Just, I, I, I couldn't stress stress that enough really yeah totally agreed it's something you said about people using credits disingenuously it's it's interesting like the more the more like you know we'll take a pop record for example a, a vocal engineer doesn't get credit here 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 they also recut the vocal multiple times somebody might think that they cut a vocal when they didn't cut a vocal but even if they did cut it they're probably yeah. not going to get credit anyway then they just put it on their in they put it on their website that they did it and it's like if you don't have clear like reliable crediting then you then it's up to you to say that you worked on something and you might be lying about it even though you don't know you're lying because you swear to God you cut that vocal, you were there, you know? So uh, True. it allows True. people yeah. to be disingenuous on purpose and not on purpose. It's kind of, it's it's interesting. Yeah, yeah, I guess, yeah, that isn't something I thought about really because um, obviously, you know, especially these days, like, um, you know, with modern, modern recordings, yeah, stuff can get cut, you know, multiple times and, who knows which one was used in the end, or it could be lots of different versions, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. I guess, you know, if, you, if, if you're on the session sheet and you're, you're employed in any point uh, during, the, during the proceedings, then studio personnel, you should be in there. Yeah, I, I agree completely. When you were, 
when you were at Abbey Road, did you find that a lot of those like, you know, single day sessions and stuff you ended up with credit or without? I, I always found that if I was on like a one or two day thing, I probably wasn't going to get credited as assistant or, or anything. Um, I mean, I wasn't credited on quite, quite a lot of things. <laughs> I, mean, I, I did a four, I did a four week gig and wasn't credited. Oh no. <laughs> which, which pissed me off no end. Um, um, uh, yeah, probably more in, in in that instance. You might have been standing in for somebody, or or they were just one day set people coming in to do drums or, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, they would they would forget. I think I think we're much more aware of credits as an important tool to further to further one's career these days than we uh, maybe were back then, possibly. But I've I've always been pissed if if people don't credit me, and I will get in touch with them. <laughs> as everyone oh, say, good. on the next run. Put me credit on, will you? Yeah. Thank you for, for discussing it. I'm just like, I feel like if I bring it up every episode and, you know, people will just be reminded like, hey, everybody you're working with, like give them all all credit. That's the goal is to just remind everybody every episode. So um, Absolutely. Yeah. 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 It's, it's really important. Really important. <laughs> Especially for like the, mid, the mid-level, like the people that are on the up, you know, like the ones that aren't already famous that are like, they're hitting their stride. Like those people... They need need to know. People need to know they're working. But yeah, well, I mean, just just uh, irrespective, um, you know, if you if you work on a, on a, on a project, you should be credited. And I think the streaming companies, you know, need need to up their game on that massively. Because I mean, I only use Spotify and, and Tidal. I still buy product, you know, you know, buy vinyl, and I haven't bought a CD for a while, but I still buy vinyl. And and generally, the credits are pretty good on on you know. The product yeah but, um yeah the streaming companies definitely need to um you know sort of saddle up with the credit where credit's due thing to be honest with you agreed agreed amazing so i've got the last two closing questions one we've already potentially answered <laughs> but uh so so let me give you let me give you this first one uh was there was there a time in your career that you chose to redefine what success meant to you I, I, to be brutally honest, I, um, I don't even know what success is. I guess when I, uh, when I became confident in my abilities and walking into a studio and not being phased by anything, you know, when, when you walk into a new studio and you look at the console, you look at the mic collection, you meet the client and not be... I mean, of course, there'll be elements of nervousness and butterflies in your stomach and stuff, but there's a, a having a quiet confidence, I guess, was when I thought, I never thought of it of success, but I thought of it as, you know, I've, 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 I've come a long way from this nervous northerner <laughs> um, <laughs> 25 years ago who, you know, sort of waltzed into Abbey Road um, thinking, fuck, how did I get here? Um, <laughs> to now, which is like, yeah, just there's a confidence, and and uh, I think so much of that comes from, and I couldn't stress this enough to to people getting into it these days. It's like cast your net wide with influences and what you listen to, and um, I mean, I, I don't really look at videos and things, but I do listen to a lot of different types of music, and I think that really informs how how you mix, especially. Um, like a lot of modern rock, it seems to me to have lots of elements of like dance music in with the low end and and stuff. And it's fine in EDM and uh, electronica because you have so many fewer elements. But when you've got lots of lower mids and mid range, and they want that sub to really kick as hard as the kick drum, and the little, you know what I mean? It's all very yeah. like okay, yeah. you're squeezing quite a few things in, and of course. They all want it to be at minus six lofts as well. So <laughs> you're, going, you're going to lose somewhere along the lines. So I, got, I, I digress a little bit, but it's sort of like, I guess, yeah, having a wide, uh, cast your net wide with um, what you listen to because, you know, people might say to you, cool, can you make it sound a bit like this? Um, and so having having a handle on on that sort of thing has been really important to me, I think, because I do listen to lots of different types of music and enjoy all equally, really, to be honest with you. And I think that's been very important to to my to my career in some ways, I guess. That's awesome. Love that. Love that. 
And then our final traditional final question here. Uh, what right now is your biggest goal and what is the next smallest thing you're going to do to go towards it? Well, as, as, as we mentioned earlier, um, the next goal is to get Atmos up and running and to calmly mix an, an album I've just produced specifically in Atmos, which I think will lend itself really well to it, and then just learn, uh, you know, make mistakes in my own time up, up towards Christmas time. And then my manager tells me that he'll have, he'll have lots of Atmos work for me in the new year if everything goes well. But it's, cool. you know, I want to do it because... I'm really interested in, in in learning that process. I love immersive audio. I think it's amazing on 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 speaker systems. So I really I want to get good at that. But it's definitely not what I want to be doing all the time. You know, I love I love producing and I really love mixing. And 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 obviously stereo is here to stay. So you know, I would I would definitely want that to be the lion's share of my work. From, from, from uh, unless unless suddenly Atmos, uh, you know, people are kicking the door down to do Atmos mixes. Then we'll see. <laughs> So somebody's got to create something, you know, with like Atmos in mind, I think is. Exactly. What, yeah. If somebody were to do that, like, you know, from beginning of production, maybe even from the the writing side, like develop an immersive musical experience. I think like that would be that would be a cool spot. Yeah. I was talking to a friend about that last week. And, and I think that's the exciting thing is is doing that from day one it's like okay we're, this is an atmos production so there are i guess no limits on it then i mean the album i'm going to do you know as we've been working in stereo but i think it will lend itself really well to to atmos so i'm not going to mix a stereo and then do make loads of stems i'm just going to do the atmos first and see how that turns out sort of thing but cool. yeah but you're right i think that will be you know the next couple of years people will specifically be producing with, with it in mind i'm sure uh, no, yeah. that's really exciting. Really exciting. Yeah, yeah. I think that that'll be exciting for for everybody whoever goes down that road. But it, yeah, this yeah, has yeah. been uh, it's such a fun hang. Uh, do you want to share with people where they can find you on the internet? And I'll, I'll put links in the show notes as well. On the internet, I'm. Uh, I've got a web, a shitty website. So, <laughs> um, I think it's guymassey.co.uk. I think. I haven't visited it for a while. Um, uh, That's where I, I found am, it. All well, oh, right, okay. Um, uh, at Yug Yesam on uh, Instagram and Twitter, I, I turn on once uh, a year. So don't bother with that. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing, awesome. Well, dude, I, I could I could keep hanging out, but I know you have you have a, a thing that you have to go to. But uh, I totally appreciate you coming on. This has been uh, has been awesome to hang. My pleasure. Thanks. So that's it for episode 54. Thanks to Guy Massey for coming on the show. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you've been enjoying the show, please consider leaving a review for us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And also don't forget to join us over at completeproducer.net. So I will see you next time.